Before the podcast, here's a word from our sponsor. After a long day at work when I'm feeling run down and dehydrated, I make a liquid IV drink. Oh my goodness, that lemon lime taste is so yummy and they have many flavors. Liquid IV can provide two to three times faster and more efficient hydration than water alone. Liquid IV contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana. Forget about those sugary sports drinks. Liquid IV has no artificial flavors or preservatives and less sugar than an apple. Liquid IV is a great tasting product that boosts my energy and feelings of well-being immediately. You can't go wrong with Liquid IV's delicious fruity flavors. Grab your Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code ATWOOD at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you get better hydration today using promo code ATWOOD at liquidiv.com. Having been a scholar of the story of Pablo Escobar for many years, and I've written several books on the subject, I came across Peter's book years ago, and it is an absolutely fascinating insight because he and Tompkins were hired by the bosses of the Cali cartel to assassinate Pablo Escobar. There was a lot of toing and froing and training and waiting, but when the mission actually was activated, certain things went wrong, which we're going to get into. So we're going to um, go over, first of all, how Peter did get recruited into the Colombian field but if you are interested in his book no mean soldier available worldwide on amazon the link will be below the description box on this video and i am talking to peter about getting this made into an audio book as well so hopefully that will be available in the coming months we'll see how it goes now peter's story has just been put out on the tv killing pablo and many of you've seen the narcos information about Escobar the series there but the absolute detail Peter goes into in this book it's it's mind-blowing and fascinating it's a real honor you know after reading this years ago now to be here sat with Peter and for him to tell us firsthand and, and be able to um to question him it's, it's up there with the time I interviewed Pablo Escobar's son so Peter huge thank you for coming on thank you how did you get contacted and contracted to go to Colombia to work for the Cali cartel? I was in a pub in Hereford one day and uh, Dave Tom Tompkins turned up and uh, he said, I've got a job. And I said, what is it? He says, it's in Colombia. I said, yeah. And uh, I said, what is it? He says, to kill Pablo Escobar. 
Uh, yeah. I said, good. Yeah, I, I, I'm in. Yeah. So uh, Dave and I flew to Colombia. Uh, we met, met some businessmen who I thought were businessmen who were high-powered uh, Cali cartel men. And we, we had a chat with them. They asked uh, if it was possible to kill Pablo Escobar. And I said yes. And uh, and I gave them advice on what we need and how we could achieve the same. Right, let's go over some of this a bit more slowly then. Yeah. So you said you met Dave Tompkins in the pub. Yes. Could you explain who Dave Tompkins is and your history, your relationship yeah. with him? Dave Tompkins is a marvellous guy. He, him and I met in Angola. He was wounded. And I went to see him in hospital. And uh, we just struck up a friendship. And over the years, we always kept contact. Uh, he had his finger in the pie in various places around the world. And... Uh, I was walking down the road in Rhodesia one day in what is now Zimbabwe. And I seen a chap with white shoes on. <laughs> and I says, There's, I haven't seen many people wear white shoes except Dave Tompkins. <laughs> so I turned the car around and it was Dave. <laughs> so we linked up in Rhodesia again, you know. Um, and we kept contact the whole time. Um, he, I moved down to South Africa. Dave moved back. Did a couple of jobs in various places. I joined the South African Army. Um, was up in Angola for a second time with the South African forces. And uh, came back to England and got Dave got in contact. And we just kept chatting from there. And I've read Dave's book as well. And if people are out there, yeah. there may be some copies of that floating around on Amazon as well. Can you remember the name of Dave's book? Yes, Firepower. Firepower, yes, okay. So you get contacted to go to Colombia then. Yes. So Jorge Salcido, Sino, yeah. what was your first interaction with him? How how Did he meet you and how easy was it to get through the airports? <laughs> we, we, we flew there. Uh, David already met him in England. Yeah. He just waved to us and we just walked straight through. There was no problem. Nobody asked any questions. Nobody asked us for passports. <laughs> we just walked straight through. Yeah. And Jorge Salcedo was the head of security for the Cali cartel. If Yes, he did, yeah. Yeah. So what was it like then when you actually entered the room to see the four heads of the Cali cartel? Were all four of them there or was it just, no, just, just brothers? Two, two brothers. Two brothers, so Miguel and... Um, what was the other guy's name? Miguel and... Um, Gilberto. Gilberto, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, they, were, they were like businessmen anywhere. Yeah. They were dressed in business suits, presented the whole thing. There was very little emotion in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when they said, can, can you kill Pablo Escobar? I said, yes. And they said, well done. And then Dave discussed the money angle with them and the equipment that we would need for the job. Uh, so... We carried on from there. Am I talking too low? No, no, you're fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we discussed the job, and we then met people from the, who worked for the Cali cartel, 
and we, we carried on from there. They, they put us into a very palatial building, <laughs> um, which wasn't good for soldiers, you know, with pubs in view of the the window, you know. Um, we moved there, and then we, they moved us up to a farm right on top of the mountain called Pennsylvania. And then we settled down to getting some physical training in. Um, every morning we'd be up at six, six in the morning, six at night, physical training. Uh, we, we, we started getting very fit there. And then eventually we said, where are we going to shoot? You can do it up on top of this mountain. So they f took us down to a place called La Guagua, which I, it's down right on near the coast. And, um, and it was jungle, so that, that suited us fine. They, we had a hut which was about the size of this room. We all lived in the hut, slept on the floor, which was good for us, uh, getting us back into form again. And we trained for 11 weeks. Wow. 11 weeks for one morning's work. Yeah. So we never missed a thing out. Um, nobody got bored with it because we were very task-orientated. And we kept adding things on. Okay, we'd start with a basic training, move on to advanced training, then helicopter training, embarking in helicopters, disembarking. And we really pushed it. Um, I thought at one stage I was pushing the men too much, which I'm a wee bit guilty of. And But they were for it, they were mature, they were good. And then when we finally told them what the target was, he never mentioned it to them. They said, right, let's go. Yeah, yeah. During that initial negotiation then, how much money was discussed? I, that was Dave's angle, but it was it was a million, around about a million dollars, I think. I'd, I, 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 you need to ask Dave on that. And uh, was, it, was it during this time or was it later on when one of the members of the Cali Cartel said, if you get me Pablo Escobar's head, he would give some extra money? He did say that. Yeah. And he said, <laughs> then everybody argued about who was getting the head. <laughs> <laughs> Had you been in Colombia before this venture? No, I'd been in the Guyana. That was the nearest I'd ever been. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed it. The people there were fantastic. Yeah. They're just in the habit of killing each other. You know, it's. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you are now, um, they sent you off to a location to train. You do yes. your multiple weeks of training. Who else is with you at this point? Who else have you guys recruited into the mission, you and Tompkins? Right, we, we recruited 12 guys, all ex-special forces or special forces type units. Every one of them had been on the trigger. They, they, they really knew what they were doing. And we'd all fought against superior odds when we were in Africa. Wow. So we accepted the fact that there was more guards in the area than there was of us. But, you know, what we had on our side was shock action. Yeah. Surprise. We were getting in there and there was no messing. There was no negotiation on it. It was straight into the job. Yeah. So when you say that in Angola there was superior forces then, are you able to give a story or an example of a battle you were in? Well, uh, the, I'd, I'd like to I'd use the word uh, Rhodesia. Yeah, Rhodesia. Uh, at one stage there, 
they dropped um, 188 of us on top of 5,000 terrorists. 5,000 of them? Yeah. But don't forget, we had assets. We had uh, Canberra's gunships, but it leveled itself out. We were we were in stop groups, and uh, when the smoke cleared, you know, there was a thousand of them dead, you know. Yeah, yeah, good grief. Um, do you want a drink? Yeah, yeah, help yourself to the drinks. Well, while you're having a drink, I'll just point out to everybody, we have got No Mean Soldier. The link will be in the description box below the video. We're hoping to get this made into an audio book, and... I read it years ago as part of my research into writing about Escobar. Absolutely fascinating stuff. All right, so, you know, when you're first uh, in a battle for your first time in your your life yeah. and people are getting killed around you, perhaps some of your guys are getting killed, the enemy's getting killed, what kind of reaction is there from you the first time? Do you have to, like, is it like a baptism of fire, basically? The first time I was in action was in Eden. Yeah. In 66, 65, um, we were moving down a wadi and we, what we thought were shepherds um, turned out to be uh, dissident tribesmen. And uh, the troop sergeant moved forward. This guy shot him in the chest and the, as he stood up, I shot him about, I think I shot him five times. And... Uh, a firefight broke out and there was a lot of a lot of lead flying each way. Um and a funny thing happened to me, I was standing there and I could hear a crack at the bottom of my legs. But I was too busy uh, in the firefight. Anyway, we, when it got light we cleared the whole area, uh checked on the dead, tried to organise follow ups, and I went back to this place where I'd shot this guy and it was a hand grenade. It was an old mills grenade, you know, it must have been years old. It landed on a rock and cracked open. And what I thought was a bullet was actually the detonator going off in the the hand grenade. So wow. there may have not been any McAleese family if it had gone off. <laughs> so, so you, 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 <laughs> you know, it's, it's probably a, a credit to your brave nature that you talk so matter-of-factly and calmly about this but to people watching you know in the thick of a battle like that you're checking the dead these are just absolutely yeah. mind-blowing experiences to people yeah. w was your adrenaline going at the time were you having nightmares flashbacks ptsd no. what, what, how, how do you adjust psychologically to the battlefield well, after the battle i sat there and the biggest concern was i had not let my comrades down yeah um and I was very proud of the men who trained me, that, that, that they'd taken me to this stage and this is how I felt. There was no fear as such. There was a bit of apprehension as the battle started, yes. Um, but I, I was very fortunate. I'd, the people who trained me, they were outstanding. The parachute regiment instructors, the SAS instructors, uh, they, 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 they were good at producing soldiers. So the best techniques, and you had the the, mo the most modern weaponry. It gave um, you an advantage. Is that what you say? We had the we weaponry we had was it was good. It was the the FN rifle, yeah, or these yeah. SLR. Well, we had what was going at the time, and it was good enough for us.
Yeah, yeah. And we use them and use them well. Yeah. And then, you know, psychologically, you said that you had a bit of apprehension. Is it just something that you get used to then, being in the battlefield? I, I, I grew used to it. I, I was once comparing the Rhodesian army with the British army. And when I was in the British army, all you got was a series of frights. You know, you'd uh, say you're going to Borneo and your heart would be in your mouth and going away again. <laughs> you'd do a trip in Borneo, come back. Yeah. You'd be at home in Hereford, you know, drinking with the guys. Next thing you're going to Aden. <laughs> so you just had a series of frights. Whereas uh, in Rhodesia, you grew comfortable with combat because you were at it the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't as if they were any better or any worse. Uh, it's just they were comfortable with combat because they were doing it every time you went out. You had a contact. Just became a way of life. Yeah. Yeah. All right, going back to Colombia then, this is the, f the first mission to assassinate yeah. Escobar. You're doing your training. Are all the weapons that you've requested, are they forthcoming? Oh, yeah. It was, as I said, it was like fucking Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Could you run, run down some of the tools they supplied you with? We had the rockets. We had the M16s. Um, interdynamics, a little submachine gun. We had some of them. We had grenades, plastic explosive. Everything that chappies like us should have. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the morale of the troops like over the course of the weeks of the training? Once the weapons came in, the guys, they felt, you know, you could get used to your weapon, get used to working with weapons, getting used to firing as a group. And uh, the whole thing started to gel together. You could feel it. Well, I could feel it. And... Uh, I just looked at them and I said, these, these guys, these guys are going for it, you know. There, there was no moaning. Uh, if there was, they'd never done it in front of me. Um, and every task, whatever you put in front of them, was done straight away. So were you guys like just maintaining a, a training discipline or were you allowed to go into the local town or wherever to blow off some steam? No, that, in the beginning, they blew off steam in the first night. Um, <laughs> no, when we went to the jungle... The game was on. Yeah. How beautiful is the jungle? Lovely. Beautiful. And we were very fortunate. We we were in a, a hut, which was right next to a stream. Yeah. So we could get in there and bath in the morning. You were clean all the time. Yeah. And the other thing was there was space there in the jungle with a stream which we could use. And we drew, drew the imaginary target on the ground with, with tape yeah. so we could practice you know, moving from room to room. Wow. And did anyone just appear out of the jungle or was it completely remote? No, we never saw a soul. Never saw a soul. No. So it was, was Jorge Salcedo, he, was he going back and forth, your contact guy while you were in the jungle? Jorge just uh, popped down every so often. Um, and he was, he was, I mean, he was a contact man. Now, a lot of people don't know it, but Jorge was in the, the army. <laughs> yeah. He was an intelligence officer. So, you know, you've got to read into it yourself to get the answer. But um, he, was, he, was a, he was a marvellous guy, you know. Yeah. So did you have to do enough training to tell the bosses, we're ready now, and then wait for them to give you the green light? No, the thing was, uh, it, in a lot of ways, we had to move faster because a reporter called James Adams had got on onto the case and uh, 
we went to Panama, we flew up to Panama, Dave and I, to have a chat with him. And uh, we um, said, look, can you hold this off? And he used the normal reporter's techniques. I've got a story here. Um, and this is word that's floating around and I'm going to print this next Sunday. Would, is there anything you'd like to say? So we got him to hold off and we said, you can have the exclusive at the end. Um, and he agreed to it and he kept his word. Was he a British journalist? Yeah. He used to work for the Times. So there's a bit of a scur over him. You go to Panama, oh, yeah. settle him down, then, then, and then you come back and you're ready for action. Yeah, we spoke to the bosses. We said, you know, it's getting too close. It's, it's The word's getting out. Let's get it done. Yes. So what happened next? Um, they got a spy into Pablo's uh, compound and uh, his job was to pass the word on to someone else who would get us on the radio and see he's in position. And uh, This is the Hacienda Napoli's estate, was yeah. it? Yeah. And what they did is uh, we just carried on training. We got the helicopters ready, painted them in police colours. Um, and then... We were there one day and the radio went and it was a goer. What did you know about Pablo's house? I flew over about four times. Uh, and it, just like in normal height, we had to do a, a high run over it. And all the, radio, all the radar operators in the area were on Pablo's payroll. So, um, so we just flew out and, and carried on flying as if it was a, a normal flight. We never circled round there in. So we got one one shot at the target and we had cameras going the whole time. What did it look like from above? Beautiful. <laughs> Could you give a bit more description? Like It was a, I remember the gate and then the, it was, it was wide and it was very, very spacious. So the gate that had the little aircraft over Aye. it. Yeah. <laughs> it was very, very spacious and then the house was a way back, and there was a little airstrip in front of it as well. Yeah. Um, was it on the Magdalena River, was it? It was in that area. Yeah. Um, but um, as I say, we got there, and I, as I say, I flew over it four times, and uh, we realised that to get there, we'd have to fly low to get underneath the aircraft, get underneath the radar to carry out the, the task. Because he had contacts at the local air base as well, didn't well, he? Everybody was on the payroll there. Yeah. If you went all round where Pablo lived, yeah. there was little corner shops. A corner <laughs> shop in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and these guys would give you sell you cigarettes and pop. And yeah. you say, No, this is good. First thing is you walk by radio Pablo, you know. <laughs> uh, when you were flying over, could you see the zoo, the rhinos? I never saw any animals, no. No. Yeah. Okay. But it's like lakes and water and stuff. Oh, it was, it was you know, it, it was well laid out. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, all in ruins now, isn't yeah. it? People are treasure hunting, trying to find his... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pablo's gold. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, so uh, you get the signal. Can you take us through the day the green light comes? Uh, Dave came in, said, we just had a radio call. It's a goer. And every, our kit was prepared the whole time. You know, as soon as we, we did any training, it was put there, ready to rock and roll, as we called it. Um, we got into the choppers and we started flying up towards Medellin, that area there, and where 
Pablo's uh, house was. I get into the chopper, and honestly, I've never known such peacefulness. And what was going through my mind was, you know, you ask yourself questions. Did the men get enough training? Are we, the, you know, is the discipline good enough for this job? And I was, I was playing mental gymnastics on the way up there. But it then came to my mind, everything was okay. It was going to be okay. And uh, I remember looking at um, a place called Manizales. We were flying up in that area there, and I looked at the town, and it was a everything was so peaceful, and we were going to wreck mayhem <laughs> further down the road. <laughs> yeah, and that peacefulness then, would you say that's like the flow state of the brain? You're in the zone to perform the mission. Yeah. At the best possible level. I, I felt that we were all ready for it. And as I say, we had a mishap, uh, which we had to cancel. What was the mishap? The mishap was I, the chopper I was in crashed into a mountain. What was the weather like as you're approaching this mishap? It was a lovely sunny day. And then clouds started forming over the Andes. And I got in hearsay afterwards. And it creates what's called a sucker hole. The cloud is there and the sun is behind the cloud. And it shines down. And if you've got peaks there, it can give you an optical illusion of what you think is a re-entrant. And you fly into it. And the pilot flew into it. He was a young pilot. And uh, I turned around to... I, I did something. I, turned, I took my, my seatbelt off. I turned around to Dave. And uh, the guys in the back, I said, get into the crash position. I just knew it before it happened. We just ran into cloud. And the next thing we hit the top, the chopper flicked over. And it's first the it's first time I've been in a helicopter flying upside down. Wow. Um, we chopped away, it chopped away through the trees and it landed in the ground. And it bored a hole about the depth of this, this, this room. And I was... Dave and I started working on the pilot. His arm had been chopped off. Now, what happened to me, I told you I took my seatbelt off and I turned around to tell the guys and that's when we crashed. So by, by me turning around, the blade came past me and I hit the pilot. And uh, Holy shit. Dave and I started working on the pilot and, uh, and I looked at him. His leg was smashed up. He, he just totally blew and... All we could do was make his death a bit easier because he, he was on the way. Well, his insides so, coming out. Or something. Yeah, and I, well, I just gave him a, some morphine and made his death a bit more less well, less painful. Yeah. Um, and he lay there, and I was so busy working on him, I didn't realise I was in a state of shock as well. So when I come up out the hole after working on the pilot with Dave, I got up there and I just, my head just slumped forward. And uh, I said, Dave, I'm not feeling too well. And they grabbed me. I suddenly realised I'd broken ribs and all the old injuries from parachute accidents were all aggravated again. And they, they pulled me onto a ledge and they left me there. Uh, got me onto this ledge and they, they started packing bandages around me because it was cold up there. Yeah. And 
to try and keep heat in my body. And uh, I said to him, go and try and get some help because there was no use all of us being up on the ridge. The helicopter, the other second helicopter flew over the top of us and uh, he was just letting us know that he was he was there, but he couldn't get down to us. So they went down and they found a, a place where a helicopter could land and they eventually got picked up and then they sent a rescue party in for me. But I lay up there for the best part of three days. I know, and this is detailed Aye. magnificently in your book. Yeah. You're just laying at the scene of the of the crash. So knowing then that you couldn't function properly physically yeah. and you had limited resources at the crash site, yeah. did you plan in your mind to preserve what you had in order to survive? What what was what was your mind what was the plan? My mind my whole plan was survive. So I, I crawled about, I found some food. My watch had come off during the crash. I went to see if the pilot who was dead had a watch and uh, that was gone as well. So I'd, I had to judge the time by the light, you know, it's getting dark and it's getting into night time. And I had the best part of three days up there. What food were you able to scrounge? I got a can of beans. And did you like think about what your next meal was going to be? Like, are you thinking that if this goes on for yeah. days, am I going to have to start eating tree right. bark or something? No, I had biscuits on me. Biscuits. And I had some Hexman tablets, which are used for heating food. Yeah. So I, I used an old army trick. I just, you dent the can, mm -hmm. just put, I put it on top of the Hexman. Yeah. And when it pops, the food inside's cooked because it's, the pressure has, has done it. Oh, wow. And uh, I, I, it, lucky it had a pool top on it. And I just sat there eating. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was all over me, you know. Yeah. And uh, that kept me going. Yeah. But then um, it was, it, I found I was doing an awful lot of soul searching, you know. Mm. Um, I was wondering, am I going to get rescued? Um, if anybody comes, is it going to be our guys or Pablo's guys? Because your proximity was close to his residence, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. So he's going to know at some point. Well, if um, if you watch all the programs, he had guys out looking for us. Yeah. Um, and I sat there, and I said to myself, "It will take me ten days to heal before I can even move." I had some escape money on me. Yeah. And I thought maybe if I can get to a near road, I had maps on me, so if I can get get to a near road, I could maybe brave my way through. Yeah. And uh, it was going all through my mind. I was formulating plans, you know, how to survive. Uh, what was I going to do if no rescue team came? Um, the normal thing a person would do if they were in my situation. Yeah. Because the last thing you want to do is die. Um, I was in a lot of pain. Um, Were you able to sleep? I'd doze off, but I never, I never slept. It was just, uh, it was raining all the time as well. What was it? <laughs> what, what position, uh, what, where, where did you choose to sleep? There was a little ledge, it was about this wide, yeah. and I got myself onto it. And uh, I just lay there. And <laughs> <laughs> I was soaking all the way through, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and, it's funny, you don't realise what you can actually put up with till you're in that position. 
you know, I'd, unbeknown to me, had internal damage and my ribs were smashed up. And all my old parachute accident uh, injuries seemed to get aggravated a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it made an impact on my life because there's not many people can crash in helicopters and survive. No. So at, at, at the soul-searching uh, moments then, what were you thinking about? Were you like rethinking everything you'd done in your life and what would happen if you if you died or survived, yeah. things like that? I um, I thought about my childhood. Yeah. Um, I thought about my father. And I thought, I thought about me in particular not being a good enough father. Um... Not being a good husband, um, and it, it was just all coming through my mind. And you know, I, I'm a Catholic, and I was trying to make a deal with God. You know, they, <laughs> they, and you know, I said, "Listen, God, if you get me out of this one, I'll try and be a good boy." Yeah. I never, there was no commitment in it. <laughs> <laughs> I just said, "I'd try." What was your relationship like with your father? Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> it looked. You can sit there and, you know, the big thing with ex-soldiers, we all, my dad was worse to me than your dad type of thing, you know. <laughs> uh, he didn't know any better. Yeah. He'd been slapped and beaten about when he was young himself. He didn't know how to say I love you. He never knew how to, he never knew how to say well done. Um, It was a shame. And he turned out a finer older man, you know, when he was, he was in his 70s, you know. Yeah. Uh, pre-tomb <laughs> yeah um, in actual fact it was a shame for him really because um, he he felt it was an image that he had to that he had to keep of himself you know it was he, he didn't have a lot of qualities you know he, he but he, he, he just he just couldn't he couldn't tell you he loved you. He couldn't say, well done. I, I, I think, and whenever you've done something wrong, which I, I did fairly often, the the investigation came secondly, you know, the questioning. You got the beating first and then you get questions, you know. Uh, it was fairly common in where I lived in Glasgow. So there's no use saying, it was my dad, it was my dad. You always get slapped about with your fathers. It's, a, just, it's just the way it was. Was he a military man? He was a military man in the sense he spent a lot of time in military prison. <laughs> um, like, for example, um, if you joined the army in 39 and the war finished, you came out in 45. If you joined in 40, you came out in 46. And so on and so on until they could get a, a regular army, to, a, a, another army together with, with national service. And he... Um, he came out in 1952 because he had to serve all his jail time again. Wow, Can you see it? Wow. And uh, I, I remember the first time I saw him. And, I, you know, I somebody said, your father's there. And he, he was around the Auntie Jane's and I walked around. And I remember he was wearing a uniform and he had a black patch on it in the back of the uniform. You know, he was in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, you know. And I said, hey, mister, are you my daddy? You know, real jock accent type thing. Yeah. Are you my daddy, mister? 
when I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, as I say, he, I don't know really how he, th what his thought pattern was. Um, he just found it hard to, to show kindness, you know. Uh, but he wasn't showing any himself. And uh, it was, I came from a family that was, you know, where I, where I actually came from, a man's worth wasn't measured in what type of job he had. A man's worth wasn't measured in how he kept his family together. A man's worth wasn't measured in material things that he had, like a car. It was measured in how hard he was, how tough he was. You know, we, for want of a better word, we called them fighting men. He's a fighting man. And he was brought up in among that. And to a certain extent, I caught some of it as well before I went in the army. So he, I'd love to have been able to talk to him before he died, but, you know, my, my sister does tell me he mellowed an awful lot, you know. Do you think that the beatings he gave you steeled you for violence so you wouldn't be shocked? Um, what it did do, he never, he never hit me like a child. He, he'd say, you want to behave like a man, I'll treat you like a man. And he, he'd batter me, you know, like you'd batter a man. And uh, How old were you at that point? Twelve. Oh dear. <laughs> Uh, and then I remember the sort of last beating he gave me was about when I was about fourteen. He broke my nose, and the teacher said, "What's happened to you?" I said, "Oh, my daddy he went yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that toughened you up at a young age. Yeah. Um. I, you know, when I look back now, it was it was where I came from. It was just pumped into you. You know, it's a, it was a subculture. I, the What applied in, in, say, the West End of Glasgow didn't apply where I came from in Shelton. And, you know, the, you know, like, for example, you'd get the thieves and they'd go and do a job somewhere. And the next thing, the first thing they did was go and get us a fancy suit and you had to have a Crombie overcoat. And they'd be standing at the corner and wonder why they got arrested by the police. <laughs> the guy's been wearing a pair of jeans the week before. <laughs> yeah. And what were you like in school? Did any of the subjects interest you? Oh, yeah. I enjoyed school. I had some good teachers. Um, and I went to a very um, strict junior school. St. Thomas's. And I went back there all about 30 years ago and I just stood in the, the yard and I burst out crying. Mm. And I, I, don't, I don't even know why. And one of the nuns came out, you know, and she said, uh, can I help you? I said, I used to go to school here. She says, come on in. She made me a cup of tea and she got this big ledger out, you know, turned it over, Michaelese. Yes, I've got Mary McAleese, so-and-so, all my family, you know, from back to about the 1930s wow. when the school opened. Yeah. And uh, we started talking about the nuns. And she said, uh, who were the nuns when you were here? I said, oh, Sister Vincent and Sister Loyola. And uh, 
She said if Sister Loyola was still alive, she'd be had up at the Hague for infringement of human rights. (laughs) (laughs) She, like, you know, for example, once uh, me and a guy called Thomas O'Donnell never went to Mass on Sunday and you had a little card that had to get marked. So I I went in and I said, you got a beating of them, you know. So I went in and she says, Peter, you know, not Peter, Peter Mackley's. You weren't at Mass on Sunday. I said, oh, yes, Sister, I was a bit late, and I, I stood up. With, I went to mass with the big people, you know, not not uh, the, the grown ups, the big people. Yeah. And uh, she says, "Who was oppressed?" I says, "You know, Father Courtney. Who were the altar boys? What colour were the vestments? You know." <laughs> and uh, I'm, it was like getting interrogated, you know, and she was just, just firing the questions at me, you know, and uh, <laughs> and the. Uh, she went, okay, Peter. And she gave me a big chunk of cocaine of ice. <laughs> and, you know, you had to stand there like this, you know. <laughs> and Thomas O'Donnell went, I never went. <laughs> he got beat up. <laughs> Was it caning then? Caning. Oh, he's a couple of slaps in the head, slaps. you know. Why? They were terrible for sort of slapping you there, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we had a strap, you know, it was a big piece of leather. Mm. And you got whacked with that. But, uh, yeah. But the, 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 the standard of teaching in the school was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, I, when I went to, see, I, I should have gone to a senior secondary and the, 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 the teach, one of the teachers spoke to me. She says, Peter, you know, go to St. Mungo's. And my dad wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he says, I'm not paying for bus fares and uniforms, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to him it was, you know. And uh, so I went to a school called St. Rock's. And uh, it was a good school. I wouldn't say it was great, but it was a good school. And uh, I learned an awful lot there. Were well, you into your geography then? Oh, I, I was always geography mad, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. And what was it then that made you want to work outside of Glasgow? I, um, I was always obsessed with the army. And... One day at a place called Berlornock, I seen a balloon going up, which we call Fat Albert now. And there was paratroopers jumping out of it. And I was fascinated by this. Then a movie came out in the parachute regiment. And I would just sit, I'd followed it all over Glasgow, <laughs> sitting there like that. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> Alan Ladd was in it, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember walking through Glasgow and it was funny there was a par there and he was immaculate you know he really carried himself well and I was following him all over the place and he just went he turned around and he says what the fuck are you doing following me I went I'm, you know mister mister you know I was, I was a bit scared me and I said I want to do this one day Um, I didn't particularly enjoy being at home at the time I was getting to a stage where I was working and I said, it's time to go, and I ran away. Did you have a job locally then first? I worked in uh, Steelworks for a bit. Steelworks. And I went to, I then ran away to Aberdeen, and that's when I joined the army. I spent about a year up there, and then as soon as I was old enough, I went right into Market Street in Aberdeen. Yeah. And uh, they tried to get me to join the Gordon Highlanders, and that's a local regiment. I said, no, it's got to be the parachute regiment. 
and uh, that was it. And how was your first parachute jump? You know, you hear all these guys giving you different stories. And, uh, you know, you talk to the instructors a lot. And one of the things, one of the instructors, you know, what likes a parachute? What likes a balloon? So, you're, you know, you're only 17, 18 years old. You say, son, that's the first time you're going to defecate, urinate, and ejaculate at the same time. <laughs> 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 and uh, I, uh, I, I couldn't wait to jump, you know. And I, you know, uh, the second one I was a wee bit apprehensive on it because it was through a hole in the floor mm. to the balloon. And then the aircraft jumps were they were they were terrific. Yeah. Does your adrenaline just go? Whoosh. Yeah, yeah. How fast do you fall? Are you looking like? No, you the. I couldn't actually give you the what speed you're falling. It was probably 15, 20 mile an hour. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, all I remember is head well forward, shoulders round, feet together, watch the ground. <laughs> <laughs> you said you had some injuries from jumping. How yeah. did you sustain the injuries? Um, the first, the first one I had, I had it in Hankley Common. And I had a, a blown periphery, you know, it was a line over the top of my parachute mm. and I pulled my, my reserve and uh, I had a bad landing and it uh, had a slight break in his leg further down. That was the first one I had. So you're coming down, you've got yeah. a line over. Yeah. Pulled, so you're coming down funny then? No, what happens is it's like a, your, your parachute becomes like a brazier. Yes. You know, and it's, it's half in two because there's a rigging line on it. Yeah. And you don't get you don't get the the pull you should get on it. And then I pulled my reserve which went up. So you know you're sort sort of going like that. Yeah. And I, I think it was possibly better than dying, you know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And what was your next injury then? Uh in Rhodesia, I uh, I landed on top of my container. We were doing a container jump. Yeah. And I let my container that hangs in a rope underneath you. Yeah. And I landed on top of it, straight on top Ooh. of it. Uh, it I, again, it wasn't a bad injury, but it was enough to put me out of work for a few weeks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the last one was the best one. Go on. Um, I did a free fall, but I was doing it as a, as a civilian, you know. Yeah. And they, I'd borrowed a parachute off a guy. And uh, it was a square parachute. And it was my first square jump. And uh, we were all trying to do a star. And, uh, you know, we never quite made it. And then we had just seen them pull, and I said, I better pull now. There was a guy just above me. I said, I'll drop a bit more. I pulled, and all I heard was bong, bong, oh bong. You know, the rigging line's breaking. No! <laughs> I went, here we go. And uh, I was too low. By the time I, got, I came under the, the chute, because I, dro I dropped even more to save this guy getting hit, but hit by my bag. Yeah. So it was about 600 feet, and by the time I looked at it, I says, I'm going in. And uh, I um, broke this leg in about 10 places, and I, this one was hanging off, and this one was fairly, fairly badly smashed. Slow down. And it was a terrible blow to my morale, you know. <laughs> Slow down. You're coming down. Yeah. And your parachute doesn't open. No, it opened. It opened. 
Yes, but there was the, 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 some of the rigging lines broke. Oh, so it wasn't, it was ineffective. Yeah. Then. So you're coming yeah. down at a reduced rate, but not at the correct rate. Yeah. You're coming down quite fast. Yeah. And are you looking at potentially where you could steer yourself to land? Well, what happened was everything went wrong. The, the, the toggles were actually locked in, they wrapped around the, the, um, the risers. Yeah. And I was struggling to try and get them. And I says, I'm going in, you know. I'm going in, meaning uh, what? I'm, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm going to smash myself. You're going to crash land. Uh, it was. Uh, was it, I, was I, it grass? Was it a field? Was it? It was grass, but, you know, I yeah. just. Uh, this leg, I just, I just felt it going bump, you know. And uh, William was there when it happened. My son. And uh, it was just one of those days. You, you get them. You said something was hanging off? You this leg was hanging off. Yeah, your entire leg was hanging it off. Was it folded back there. Holy shit. Yeah. How long did it take to recover from that? Two and a half years. <laughs> oh, my God. How old were you at that point? I was a 30, 38, 39. Did you retire from jumps after that? I decided to give it up. <laughs> I got my logbook. I'd done 504 jumps at that time. 504 jumps. And I just drew a line. I went, just <laughs> under, I went in the end. <laughs> what about the guy who gave you that parachute? Did you have uh, a word with him? No, he came back and asked, asked me for the money for the rigging lines. <laughs> All right. So in, in the order of we're telling your story, you are presently at the crash site. You're scrounging around for food. You're sleeping on the yeah. ledge. You're doing soul searching. Yeah. What uh, over the days uh, as you're eating, yeah. is your in, are your injuries getting worse? Or are you starting to feel re recovery? No, I. I wouldn't say it was recovery. It was acceptance. Acceptance. Yeah, and I said I'm in a bit of a state here, and I, I move myself about accordingly. Can you see it? Um. And. You've run out of beans at this point. Oh, I. <laughs> I was, for this time, I was eating biscuits and I had very little water, you know, just sticking to the top of your lip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You like catching rainwater or anything? I, or? I was getting some water off a leaf, you know. Leaves. <laughs> Were there any animals you were looking at as I could eat this? No, it was too, it was too, I was too high up for animals and whatnot, you know, but yeah. uh, the way I looked at it is, um, I was in that position and I'd been, as I say, I was, I was very well taught by instructors and it prepared me for what actually happened there. Like when a helicopter crashed, the guys went to go to the helicopter and went, stop, stop, stop. Why? Because the blades are still turning. And if you step in a helicopter, you're going to get chopped up. So wait till the blades stop and then get out, you know. How many guys were on the helicopter? Five. Five. So you got yeah. one dead. Yeah. You're down. The rest have gone down the, yeah. the mountain. Yeah. Okay. And while you were crawling around then, what was their journey down the mountain like? Say again, please. What was their journey down the mountain um, like? They were okay because they weren't badly damaged. Dave was a bit damaged in the head. The other two guys were okay. And um, they get down there and it was uneventful. They met some civilians who were not in Pablo's payroll type of thing. And uh, they managed to, to 
get them in an area where the chopper could see them. Can you see it? Because it came out and flew over every day to reassure me that something was getting done. Could they drop you any supplies or anything? No, they couldn't. It was, no. it was it was like that type of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. So they have they um, meet some independent locals then, and they come back up with the locals and a stretcher. How did no, they work? No, they they went they they got out. Yeah, and they were dropped at a base beforehand, and these guys organised a, a rescue party. Um. Who came to look for me? They were mountain men, you know. They mountain knew, uh, men. Yeah, they knew yeah. the stuff. And there's a CLA there, and I could hear noises and I could hear Spanish voices. And I went, no. What was going through my mind was Pablo's guys. <laughs> you know? Did you have a weapon ready? I had to die. And, um, you know, I just cocked the interdynamic. And again, the old Catholic came at me. I just said, God, if, if I'm going to die here, let me give a good account of myself, you know, yeah. because I knew um, if they got a hold of me, my death would be terrible. But as, as they came closer and closer and closer, and one of them was nearly on top of me, and I shoved, shoved a machine gun, submachine gun in his stomach, and he went, hey, Colonel Ricardo, Colonel Ricardo, you know, that was George, uh, his code name. Yeah. And... Uh, he says, okay, we're going to get you. And I said, how far? Eight hours. So they chopped a tree down, um, cleaned it all off till it was like a telegraph pole. They had ropes with them. And they lowered down this, this re-entrant, sliding down the pole with this rope around my chest. It was fucking terrible. <laughs> it was painful. And they carried on. Don't forget, we were 9,000 feet up. They kept doing this all the time. And by night, by nightfall, we'd get down to the lower region of the mountain and we got into a little, a little culvert there. You know, and it flooded during the night. We were soaking. And I just sat there. But I was glad to be rescued. And, uh, and the next thing I heard, them, I, I told you I had escape money. And I heard them splitting the money up. <laughs> They'd robbed me. <laughs> They'd never seen as much money in their life and they were making sure they got their market share, you know. <laughs> Where was that stashed? It, it, it was in my escape bag. Ah, they've gone through your things. Ah, yeah. Yeah. How, how, um, did you trust those guys instinctively or did you think they, they could perhaps turn against you? No, they knew too much. You know, when I started questioning them. Yeah. And they, I threatened them if they didn't get the money back. Yeah. They were going to be in trouble, but I never got it back. <laughs> yeah. So they were probably had fear of the Cali cartel, did they? Uh, if, yeah. if they'd been hired by Cali to get you. Yeah. And they robbed you and, and, and killed you, yeah. for example. Yeah. Cali would come after them then. Yeah. Yeah. And as I say, they carried on for a bit. We slept that night, and the next day I said, how far? They said, four hours. I just kept going on and on and on. How far? Four hours. And eventually I saw a hose pipe and it was there we are run, uh, getting uh, running water. The hose pipe was, had bricks on it into the stream and it, was, it must have been about a thousand metres long. And you just pulled the cork out and you had running water. Wow. Yeah, and put it back in. Anyway, I, I, I said we're getting near civilization, and I, they took me to a hut and a lady brought me a cup of coffee and it was 
it was like somebody had poured a small glass of water into a, a complete container of uh, coffee <laughs> and I drank it. <laughs> and you you thought they were giving me a kickstart. I just, they put me on a bed that was made out of sacking, you know, like proper sacking. I just thought I dozed off. And the next thing they said, the helicopter's coming, the helicopter's coming. So I'm expecting the helicopter to fly up to where we were. I get into it like a gentleman and carry on. <laughs> I says, where's the helicopter party? Went on top of that hill. <laughs> there was a hill there. <laughs> I got up to the top of the hill. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and by this time I've got a stick and I'm pushing myself up. And there's a guy at the back of me pushing me. <laughs> and I got up. And the helicopter came in and blew me over the road back down the hill again. <laughs> no! <laughs> and uh, they eventually got me up and they got in the helicopter yeah. and they, they sneaked me into a hospital and got me sorted out and then moved me out of there as quick as they could because it was still in bandido territory, you yeah. know? Yeah, So what where was the safe territory that they got you to then? Back to near Cali, was it? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and did you see Jorge and... Um, no, I never saw anybody at all. Tompkins? No, no one until I got back. Really? Yeah. So you were hospitalised for a bit? I was in the lap of the gods, you know. I, yeah. I, you know, I was going through my mind, what's going on here? Yeah. But they, they're all extremely professional. Then the doctor came in and says, you've got to go. So I think they'd picked up that I was in the local hospital because people talk. They flew me into Cali. And uh, Jorge was at the airport waiting for me. And uh, I was all covered in bruises, covered in blood, you know. And uh, um, I just went and stood under the shower and just conked out, you know. I was, I was exhausted. I was burned out. Had there supposed to have been three helicopters that day? There was three. There was three? Yeah, there was two, two assault helicopters. Uh, for, sorry, it was a total of four. Uh, two helicopters, an evacuation helicopter, and a Telstar. We had a Telstar up there for communications. And, you know, you get all the, you get all these uh, inspired amateurs, you know, these, how would it have worked? Well, you know, I'd been trained by a lot of people who knew what they were doing, and I had two Special Forces signalers with us, and they knew how to rig the thing up. So we, we had a good setup there. Was there too much weight on the helicopter? Um, it could have been getting that way. Because wasn't there something happened where you had to put extra stuff on your helicopter? No, no, we'd, we'd, no. not to my knowledge. I'd, okay. If, if so, I can't remember. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's something in Tompkins' account yeah. about that. So We did have quite a bit of stuff in it, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you recovered then, and um, are all of the... Is the morale of the of the soldiers is it is it shattered by this event? Or are you guys gung ho to, to no, do it again? No. Uh, I spoke to Dave. I says, "What's the score?" He says, "We're going to go for it again." I said, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> you know, and Dave, Dave was a civilian. You know, he'd, yeah. he'd never been in the army. Yeah, but he had an awful lot of bottle. Plus, the fact he was, you know, he's he saw as as, as a payday again. Can you see it? So they, did they pay you for that first attempt? Yeah, we got, uh, they paid $12,000. Uh, 
for every assault, every time we took off. Can you see it? Yeah. So the guys got the money for that. They was paid straight away. There was yeah. no messing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was getting a bit ifish, you know, people were making investigations around Cali. Was it in the news, the, the attempt? No. Okay. Uh, I, I, I can't, if it was, it was later with James Adams, can you see Your it? journalist friend, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we went up to, to um, Panama to get out of the way. So we cool off. I uh, we were up there and we were getting ready for the next attempt and it wasn't feasible anymore, so we all come home. Yeah, yeah. And then um, did you get recruited to go back at some point? Dave went out and uh, they came up with the idea of bombing Pablo because by this time he was in a prison of choice at a place called Envigado. And Dave, Dave says, right, we'll get a bomber and just bomb it. The cathedral. Yeah. And uh, so Dave went up to America try to buy a bomber and get locked up for three years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Didn't he try and buy it off an undercover Aye, person? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, that, that aircraft had been fitted with something that was illegal, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a strike aircraft. A strike aircraft, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Jorge did manage to source bombs. Yeah. How did that come about? It was just the... He had contacts in America, and uh, we just worked on it from there. We never asked him any questions as long as stuff turned up. Yeah. And uh, he was, Jorge was pretty good. It's just that I think he saw the writing on the wall, and I think the survival thing kicked in with him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because the bombs were sourced from, what country was it? There was some war-torn country, wasn't yeah. there? Yeah. In South America, I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. And um, I read about how he like went to get the bombs, and there was all these animals on the Earth Strip, and it all got really crazy. And then that got in the news, I think. Yeah, something like that happened. He he was he was good at meeting the right people. Yeah, but then again, he had an awful lot of money behind him. Can you see that? Yeah, which helps you to to get to the right people, especially when you're in the arms trade. Because the Cali Cartel were moving billions of dollars a year in coke, yeah, weren't they, to yeah. America? Yeah, well, I think this is, there was one stage there we were led to believe that the idea was to get the two cartels fighting each other, get them to wipe each other out, and the problem would then be solved. The army could come in and then clean up the place. The reason being, everything was infiltrated by, uh, by Pablo. I mean, people, even DEA guys were on the payroll with them. Um, the, it's like when they talk about the crazies, he did a lot for charity, you know, and so did Pablo. You know, but it was, by the same token, he was very kind to the people in Medellin, football pitches, helped the schools and whatnot, but crosses cross them. I mean, he blew up an aircraft there just to get one guy. Who wasn't even on it, the yeah, presidential candidate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What had you heard about Pablo before being contacted for this mission? Did you know his reputation? I'd, just what I'd read in the, in the newspapers. I'd never actually researched him. Yeah. Um, I knew that he was a bit of a baddie. 
Yeah. Um, I knew that if he was killed, he wouldn't be missed. And the same with me. Um, that's it. That's all I knew about. Yeah. But when I got there, I picked up what he'd actually done. Jorge gave us a good in-depth briefing. Yeah, have a, have a quick drink. Let me just put, put your book on the screen right now while you're having a drink. No Mean Soldier. We're talking to Peter today, who was in the thick of the action on the mission to assassinate Pablo Escobar. I read this book, gripped me like crazy. I urge people to check it out, definitely. And why did you call it No Mean Soldier, Peter? <laughs> Believe it or not, some guys were on about who does he think he is, No Mean Soldier. It was nothing to do with how tough or how mean I felt. Uh, if you go to the Bible, Paul was once captured. St. Paul was, and he was getting a hard time off the Romans. And he said, who are you? He says, I'm Paul, a citizen of uh, uh, Tarsus, no mean city. And in 1935, two chaps in Glasgow wrote a book about Glasgow, and it was called no mean city. No mean soldier is just telling them I'm, I'm a soldier from Glasgow. Yeah. But the critics don't. Like, uh, <laughs> the critics get right in there, you know. <laughs> so when you're contemplating the second assassination attempt and you come to the conclusion to um, bomb Pablo in the cathedral, yeah. and for the viewers perhaps who are not familiar with the cathedral then, what had you learned about the cathedral? We learned it. It was fenced off and it was built in three levels, one, two, and three. And Dave and I were looking at it. And uh, and what gave it away was it looked as if it was like that. Three, in actual fact, it was like that. And what gave it away was a lanyard. The lanyard the guy had on came up in a different way in the photo photograph. Can you see it? It was in his the opposite so shoulder. Um, Dave went away, sourced a pilot who was who was up for it, and he said, you know, we, by this time we've got, we'll try to do it with a helicopter. And he says, you know, what you've got to do, you need a delay on the bomb because if I drop the bomb, it's just going to lift a helicopter up in the air. And then we, we oh, by this time we're just working out what we could do, uh, it came back into us again to attack it, um, to go up the other side of the mountain, get to the top and then come down onto the prison. Um, it wasn't feasible because was, you're dealing with the authorities then. Can, can you see what I'm getting at? Um, and the, But, you know, Pablo was fairly comfortable. He was calling the tune in that prison. You know, who could come and see him, his girlfriends and, and whatnot. Um, and I think the authorities just looked and I think they tried to move him into another prison and he eventually got free. So when you first looked at attacking the prison then, yeah. did Pablo have defences against helicopters landing so there couldn't be a ground assault? No. He didn't? No, because it was, the, the, the security was all supplied by the army. And that's what was worrying us. Yeah. Um, we didn't want to come into 
contact with the Colombian army at all. Because then it would trigger a war with the government. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the plan was to drop these bombs and just cook these guys yeah. while they were incarcerated. Yes. And would a, what, how, like, um, what kind of a bomb would it take to do that? It would take a bomb with a delayed action in it. Yeah. Um, Dave was more into that. I, I dropped off the scene uh, for a bit, and Dave, <clears throat> I've spoken to him about it, and the people who spoke to reference bombs, reference helicopters. They were players. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. Um, but they, they knew it'd have to be a delayed bomb, a delayed fuse on it, because it would just lift the helicopter up near the blast. Yeah. Um, interesting, because when Dave does it, he's, he's fairly thorough, you know. Mm. So the Cali cartel did manage to source bombs. As these bombs were getting flown into Colombia, the uh, Colombian Air Force was tracking that craft and started to like try to intercept it yeah. but cali sent up a dummy yeah. plane yeah. and the dummy plane took the air force yeah. away didn't it i bet those people are not fools <laughs> they were fairly bright guys you know yeah yeah and but then it started to get leaked to the media yeah which caused the the, the uh, that uh, mission to get cancelled did it yeah uh, it just became sort of knowledge of what was going on and what people were planning. You know, there was all sorts of conspiracy theories. Like, for example, um, when I crashed, the pilot had been put under pressure by Escobar to crash the helicopter or he was going to kill their family. I mean, I love my family, but, you know, you've got to think twice when you're sacrificing your life, <laughs> yeah. especially when you're doing it yourself, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Escobar caught wind of the attempt at the cathedral yeah. and he moved from the main structure yeah. into little dwellings further up in, yeah. the, in the woods and stuff. Oh, he called the tune there. There's, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of your guys then, when I say one of your guys, one of the um, soldiers that being recruited for the missions, didn't one of your guys speak to the media and he ended up, something unfortunate happened to him? He kind of like said things he shouldn't have said. Uh, that was earlier on. Okay. Uh, uh, an Australian guy. Yeah. I won't say, it hurt me because he was one of my ex-soldiers. Mm. Um, and he came to me, he said, my bottle's gone. And I said, okay. And I said, I've got to get him out of here because if he sits around, he'll start talking negative and it might affect him or all of the, the rest of the group. So I concocted up a story that the guy... His business was collapsing. His missus was in a bad way. And one of the guys just piped in and he went, he's a fucking liar. <laughs> that was the exact wording. And uh, he got there and the first thing he did was head for the press. And he, he was the sort of guy that you could absorb into a big army because he was funny and he was witty. Um, but when I seen him on the telly, I, I just went, you know, he was prepared to sacrifice a life of his friends, you know, for his ego. And he phoned me up. I'd, I was here at the time. And he says, I'd like to talk to you. I says, I can't. I refuse to talk to you. I, w I wasn't giving tough talk anything. 
I just said, I, I, I can't talk to you. And I said, you know, you let your friends down. I knew you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then the next thing I knew, he'd committed suicide. Or done he with an overdose of drugs. Um, the Australian newspapers got onto me and they were trying to, you know, do them over. And I, I just said, you know, I know very little of them. I'm not in the business of doing guys down. He had to live with that in his, his own conscience. And uh, he lost an awful lot. What, what credibility he did have, he lost it. Didn't he get injured? Didn't someone attack him as well after the, um, the I couldn't, interview? I couldn't actually tell you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, uh, I just know he's, he was very hard to live with. He, like for example, I went to his first wife's uh, house one night, invited me for a meal. And he was always telling war stories. And the last he went, Terry, do you ever stop? Do you ever stop? And from what I gather, the next wife done a job on his kneecaps, you know. <laughs> and he, um, he, he just, he wanted to be a soldier, but beyond the fringes, of, out of death's reach. It, it, I mean, he was, he was okay when he was me. I, I, I can't, when I had him with me, uh, when I was in 44, para, he was all right. But I didn't know the depth of him. Can you see that? Yeah. Um, because when we were scrapping, he was never there. Yeah, yeah. And what about the other fellas who had been on the missions? How did they fare? Um, what were their fates after? Um, one of them finished up in jail in Scotland. A bit of heavy drinking involved being a jock. <laughs> Um, a lot of them started drinking fairly heavily. Um, one of mine, he lives fairly close to here, a friend of mine. He just went back to what he was doing. Uh, went back on the security circuit. Um, another guy uh, finished up in drugs, another Aussie guy. It was just, and it was a Glasgow guy called Pete Donnelly. And Donnelly just really laid into the drink, you know, and he eventually died. Do you think the drink is a self-medication for some kind of postponed trauma? I mean, you know, you, you handling the situation, you're controlling your adrenaline, but then perhaps years later it catches up with you? I was talking to a chopper pilot and I laughed about the crash I had and he says you can laugh now he says in about 18 months time you're going to get it if I did get it I never noticed it um, we talk about PTSD I've never noticed it um, I don't think it's as prominent as it's made out to be but it does exist and I think what has happened with that is guys have realised they can get money out of it. Mm. You know, uniform people. It's become a racket. Yeah. And uh, I think when I came out of the British Army, and don't forget I wasn't at war, I was an instructor at Brecon at the School of Infantry. Um, I think I think there was a bit of stress. But, you know, I... 
I had to go and look for a job. I didn't know how to go for an interview. You know, like in the army, when you want something, it's always there. So, you, you know, it was all these different things. And I, I suffered from, I can only put it down stress, but it wasn't post-traumatic. Yes, it was after the event, because I was used to things getting done properly. But, you know, to turn around and say, the army did this to me, the army did that. I mean, I was sitting with Billy, and, I, and the telly came on one night. And there was a guy there, and the bottom lip was sort of trembling. I said, Billy, his wife's left him. <laughs> you know, and they, I've got PTSD, I've got PTSD. And uh, they sent me out to Afghanistan, I've got PTSD. Now, what, what about the poor old bastards in the Somme? You know, they, they weren't allowed those luxuries. Now, for example, if a guy is a bricklayer, and he's working in a building site here, and he, his company says there's work up in Scotland, but we're going to move you up there. And his wife starts messing around while he's away. Does he turn around and blame the company? He doesn't turn and say, you, you, you've ruined my life. But they do it with the army because they know they can get something out of it. There's an incentive. Um, and I think the army's got a lot to learn as well. And the, the, they can sometimes be a bit insensitive as well. So it's a double-sided thing. Yeah. Was the helicopter crash the closest to death you have ever been? I've been close to death a few times. But I think um, I think possibly the helicopter crash was because I knew there was no support. I knew there was no medics on call. I knew there was, there was no medivac helicopter. Yeah, probably, yeah. What were the other two times? Um, me and a guy who we'll call the posh jock, um, we got ourselves into a, a bit of a fix. Uh, we jumped into a place called uh, Tembe in the Mozambique and we raided a camp there. And uh, this guy got us pinned down and he was in a hill behind us here. And he was shooting down at us. And we got into a trench that was there, and the bullets were just landing there, and I was shooting all the top away. And I said, I'm going to get this bastard. And who I call it, the posh jock, he went, Peter, stay where you are. This chap knows what he's doing. So we eventually got out of the trench, and the guy had enough sense. He just stopped firing. And then when we joined the sweep line again, he started up again and stayed back there. So, um, the posh jock stayed back and uh, he um, had another go at him you know and they were exchanging fire but I never, none of us ever knew the outcome you know um, there was that time um, yeah, uh, another time we were at a place called Kamato and they uh, and it was sprung on us because the Pathfinders had been attached to one parachute battalion. This was in Angola. We'd have been attached there as, as observers to see how the parachute battalion worked. And all of a sudden, there was a shitload of fire came down, you know. And this officer said to me, he says, do you think you can take that place? I said, uh, yeah, okay, get me the Pathfinders. So there was six of us. I called him in, 
And I says, guys, we've been training for ages on this. There, there they are. It's going in there, earning our wages. And they never, not one of them hung back. There was no zigzagging, you know, that you see in the movies. We just went straight for them. And the amount of, I'm glad they were bad shots. There was bullets all over the place. Oh my God. I, and we, we get into the trenches. We were fighting with them inside the trenches. Yeah. And uh, I threw a, a white phosphorus and a, a grenade, a, a M26 grenade into this bunker. And this guy emerged out of the bunker. He was massive, you know. And he came running towards me. I tried to pull him. And I did a double feed in my rifle. I'm trying to clear my rifle and he's running towards me. So I finished up battering him on the head with the rifle. And he was extremely motivated because he was in fire as well, you know. I said, this guy couldn't kill me. And I was beating him and beating him. And lucky enough, one of the guys came across and, you know, finished him off. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. That is absolutely mind-blowing. What was, um, what happened then after that second mission? Did you think there might be a third mission? Um, I didn't think that there would be, but Dave was always working on it. Can you see it? Yeah. Dave, 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 Dave's at it the whole time. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's um, He can recognise an opening and he's extremely... He's extremely good at negotiation, and he's 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 pretty good at selling, you know. Yeah, and why didn't a third mission pan out? Did is it because Escobar got you know he he died in the in the gun battle? Yeah, yeah, it was getting that way. Yeah, and they didn't see the need for it anymore. Whereas before, they were considering doing an attack on him, and that's why, you know, we knew all about it. Of course, they knew all about it. Because Dave told them. Yeah. And they, they said, get on with it, get it done. And the way they saw it was, we've got some guys here who are going to go and have a go at this. And if they get killed, it's no loss. You know, they just said, well, let's suck it and see. How did you first meet Dave? I met him in Angola. He was wounded. And uh, I was in a different group from him. And I, I suddenly holding Roberto said to me, can you take over everybody? Because Callan has gone mad. He's starting to shoot people. And I said, yeah. And I found out some of the guys had been wounded, so I went to see them in the hospital um, to find out what happened and find out what they were doing. And that's how I met Dave. And how's Dave doing now? Um, I wouldn't say his health's too great. Uh, but Dave's Dave, you know, he, he's, he's, he's always trying to put something together. Still. What made you want to write a book? A person approached me about it. And I was the co-author on the book. I mean, he was an SAS author, in fact. And he says, I think you should write a book about your life. And then somebody came along and said, I think... We should make a documentary about the book. I, I never, I wasn't the driving force with any of it. I just got on with it. And writing the book was great fun because I, I used to drink at the time. 
and we, we get a load of wine and we'd sit there winding each other <laughs> up, you know. <laughs> what year was it then that you started to write the book? I think it was 89. 89, it was published in 1993. Yeah. With Mark Bless. Yeah, he was an SAS officer. And how long did it take for you guys to have these meetings whereby you got all the words down? It was, took, I think it, now I'm guessing now, it's a long time ago, I think it took about two years, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but it was fun, you know, because Mark knew how to get the best out of me and he knew what made me tick. Yeah. And we could we could laugh like we were talking about James Adams and I got on it, we met him in this hell in Panama and I said, he looked about like Crockett out of Miami Vice and he went, did he have a glass with an umbrella in it? <laughs> a, you know, a, a, a spirit glass, I went. Yeah, you know, when we get each other going like that. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. was good fun. It was good fun. And when did this TV series uh, show come about? I think it was oh, six, seven years ago. And uh, Dave Whitney came to see me and he said, I'd like to make a movie. Um, and he said, I'd like you to do what's called a teaser. So he. We did this teaser and he, he peddled it around. He didn't have any joy with it. And then all of a sudden he, he came on to me. It may have been two years. And uh, he says, uh, Scottish television's going to go for it. Wow. And uh, that was it. And this has just come out this year? No, that that is a reprint of the old book. No, no, not the book, the TV show. Oh, the TV show, yeah. It's just come out this year. Yeah. And how has the reception to it been? Have, you, have people been reaching out to you? Oh, yeah. And uh, in actual fact, uh, I've had a couple of um, messages from people on the spiritual side. You know, somehow I clicked with them, you know. Yeah. Um, the old Catholic training and thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be an altar boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've had an awful lot of ex-soldiers come on to me. You get the odd guy. Um, you know, it's lucky you, you're lucky you crashed because if you'd have got to the target, you'd have all been killed, you know, Pablo this and Pablo that. And I wrote back, I said, you know, you seem to be a military expert. Yeah. Now, there's going to be a movie made of this, and I wonder if I can call on you to give me your advice. They just left it that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I interviewed Pablo Escobar's son. Yeah. And um, he's like completely speaking out against violence now. And he's yeah. actually, he did a, a program whereby he met the sons and daughters Sorry. of his dad's victims. Yeah. And it's all about reconciliation yeah. and peace. So he's doing a good thing now. Yeah. Well, you know, talking about it, I spoke to her last two nights ago. She got in contact with me. Yeah. And she was an actress. I don't know who she was. She kept her name back. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was married on to a gangster. And she, you know, she said, Peter at the time, it all seemed glamorous. Tons of money, fancy clubs. She said, but my life was empty. You know, and she's she's into one of the churches now. She's a, a minister somewhere, you know. Yeah. But she got in contact and it was great talking to her. Yeah, yeah. We're almost finished, Peter, so... No, you keep on. Um, okay, when, when, when you look back at your life then, yeah. what is your proudest achievement? 
probably getting into the SES. Entering the SES? Yeah. What year was that then? How old were you? I was, uh, it was January 1962. Yeah. I was just over the age of 19. So I had a friend in my town who entered it and he didn't, yeah. he didn't, he, some, for some reason they wouldn't let him in. Um, I don't think he passed the training. How, how hard is the training? I found it hard, but there was an awful lot of imagination using it. It was fantastic. Yeah. You know, the actual, uh, the original course itself where you, it was fitness yeah. and it was go there, you get to there, go to there, go to there. But the continuation training, the imagination that was used on it. Yeah. And there was also a scenario, you know, we would, we'd escaped out of prison camp, mm -hmm. you know, you, this is, you get the battle picture, yeah. uh, you're on the run now, uh, so and so and so and so and, um, you'll meet an agent at such an area, you'll, you'll have to fetch him out, the guy's drunk, he's a drunk but he's, he's a good agent, but you'll have to pump all the information, yeah. we went there and there was a guy who was drunk. He was steaming, we're trying to get, you know, and he was genuinely drunk. Yeah. So we then had to go and do another little job. We blew a water catchment pool, which was supposed to be a dam. And then we were supposed to get picked up by submarine at Aberystwyth. So we came all the way through Wales. And, you know, I, I worked out the mileage. We'd done about between 80 and 100 miles. But the, 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 they'd built such, a, built such a good scenario in it. It was broken down, can you see it? Yeah. You've only clocking over only got 99 miles to go. You know, you never thought of it like that. Do you miss being in the thick of the action? Um, to be honest, no. Now, there's nothing worse than an aging gunslinger. You know, honestly, you know, you you can talk the talk and, and whatnot, but, you know, you know, I met one guy there and he was on about, I'm always ready to go. You know, and he's rocks, he's, he, in actual fact, in his house, he, he had a steel locker, an army steel locker, his rucksack on top of it, his poncho, uh, I can get caught up at any time, you know. <laughs> and the, the, the guy was nearly 60. Yeah. He, yeah. He, you know, uh, so um, I think I let go at the, the right time. Yeah. Um, if I ever, you know, I could see myself getting involved in organ, helping to organise something. But I'd, as a doer, don't yeah. don't don't kid yourself on. That's how you get killed. Yeah, I met a mafia hitman in in yeah. jail who um, he was in his sixties. He was always ready to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. How did your career in the military and you know being hired to assassinate Escobar? How did that affect your family? Um, quite a bit. Um, I was very much into what I could do. And I thought as long as I looked after, as long as the money coming into the house, it was a jock attitude. Get the money there on a Friday night and then you can do what you want. You know, the, the, well, I took, when I say the jock attitude, where I came from in Scotland, get the money in, you know, weigh them in on a Friday night and go for the drink, you know. Um, in my case, it was chasing soldier, and I, I, I think um, Jane, who I was married onto in, in Africa, was a good woman, and uh, I, I just blew it. Uh, you know, it'd be nice to turn around and say she done this, she done that. She done none other than be a good wife, 
and it was me that blew it, not her. Was she worried that you wouldn't come home? No, she 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 said she said that never ever worried me because I always knew you'd come back. <laughs> but she used to wind me up at times. Yeah, and she'd you know she'd get me going, Peter. This family needs medals. Now I want you to go out there and charge as many machine guns as you can. You know, this is her telling me I'm feeling the disapproval, you know. <laughs> and how many kids do you have? I've got uh, I've got a few kids and I'd rather avoid it, you know. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. My, yeah. There's William in there. He's he's he always keeps contact with me. Yeah. What's the most pain you've ever experienced? Mental pain, physical pain. We'll do both. Mental. I'm. I'm not. I'm not good at taking failure. Um. And the pain came. To me, it was not the failure itself. It was overcoming the failure. Um. The. And not being a good husband, not being a good father, that was painful. After the event, when it was happening, I couldn't see it. Um, physical pain, probably when I was on the mountain. Was that worse than when your leg was hanging off? Yeah, because I knew there was doctors there and there was a system to back me up. Yeah. I mean, when I went into the hospital with this leg, the doctor said, if you come out there with that leg on, it's a bonus. He told me before I went in. Wow. And he was he took an interest in me and uh he took bones from my hip and grafted it back on. Good grief. And uh I was like, you know, failure. Um I think mainly my my social life. If I ever spoke to a young soldier now, I'd I'd advise him against becoming a hard case. Can you see? I mean, I used to enjoy fighting. I mean, I, I was, I was my glory. I won some, I lost some, but I was. Let me tell you, I was. I was never a good fighter. I could just actually soak up punishment, and the other guy got exhausted. You know, <laughs> and then I used to come into my own. <laughs> but some guys never got exhausted. <laughs> and speaking of uh, talking to soldiers or ex-soldiers, you spoke to my friend Nick Don. Yes, yeah, I did. We had him on the podcast, if people haven't seen that, his experience in Indian yeah. prison. I'll have to send you that if you want to watch uh, what I did with him. Uh, please do. Yeah, very moving story, very emotional. Yeah. And, you know, his relationship with his sister, just so so powerful, the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. I, like, what I noticed there was very, very strong family ties. Uh, and I read his book, and there were certain things... It, some of it was very graphic mm. and it was um, he, he spoke about the parachute regiment the, the trinasium and stuff now he was speaking about the parachute regiment in Catrick but I had been trained in Aldershot but it was ex exactly the same I could identify with it yeah. and what I liked about the book is he'd say something and his sister would come in now there was a book written like that about the Falklands called When the Fighting is Over it was about a Scots Guards officer, and he it told you what his father was thinking. Can you see it? Yeah. And I, I actually enjoyed reading it, and uh, and I met the two of them oh, about 
three weeks ago. Yeah. And it was an experience. I, I spoke with, with Nick and my mate videoed, videoed it, you know. I told my other ex-soldier friend I was coming here today, Chris Thrall. Oh, yeah, he was an ex-Marine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He said to say hello and give his oh, love and respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, have you guys got any questions for Peter? Anyone got any more questions? I, I've got something to say. Yeah, go for it, yeah. I don't think I came across well enough. If you want to do it again, I'll do it. No, you came across absolutely fantastic, mm. Peter. You've sat here for almost two hours now. Mm. The time's gone like that. You've you've took us there, you know, in, in the details. This yeah. has exceeded my expectations. It's yeah. been absolutely brilliant. And I'm going to urge people watching this to get even more details yeah. by reading your book. The link will be in the description box below the video. I'm, I'm talking to Peter about getting an audio book out as well. So hopefully, you know, if you're watching this in future months, the, the, there'll be an audio book available as well. Yeah. And um, Peter's got his book. Dave Tompkins has got his book. The, the, they're both um, separate accounts of the helicopter crashing. This so you get the, the perspectives of both of them, like a dual narrative. And um, I've written Pablo Escobar's story, which is the longest book in the history of the world about Escobar. I do include, um, you know, some of what happened on the helicopter assassination attempt, and that's how I learned about it years ago. And it's been an absolute honor for me to come here today and finally meet Peter after I knew so much about his story and for him to be so um, gracious with his time and, and let, us, let us know, you know, exactly what happened. So do, do you have anything to say to the viewers, Peter, in, in conclusion, the viewers are on that camera right there? I, I thank everybody for the support I've had um, during this period of my life. Uh, guys like myself, um, we attract an awful lot of critics and, uh, and I've had an awful lot of people have attacked the critics. <laughs> So uh, they have they've really backed me up, and um, and I'd, I'd I'd like to thank people who took the time to watch it. Um, in actual fact, it, it was about me, but I actually enjoyed watching it. I think the director Dave Whitney done a fantastic job. Yeah, yeah. So please let us know in the comments what you thought about this video today. Huge thank you to the new subscribers. Subscription logos in the corner of the screen. And most of all, huge thanks to Peter for coming on and um, sharing his story. Thank really appreciate much. it. Thank you very much, Peter. Cheers. Bye.